Brick Moon Fiction presents part three of our series, Strange Investigations. Healers by Kevin R. O'Hara. The elevator door opened and Dr. Heather Stewart, a late thirties tall, red head with innumerable freckles on her face, strode into the reception area of the emergency room. She surveyed the area, noticing that it was fairly busy as she approached the front desk. Having no patience to stand in the long line, she changed course and headed to the back area, just as nurse manager Rachel Ocampo, a no-nonsense Filipino woman in her mid-fifties, came out and nearly ran into her. Rachel, Heather said abruptly. Oh, it's you. Rachel kept walking with the purpose of her position, but also with obvious annoyance at Heather. I need to know if Eugene is back. Heather started to ask. No, Rachel interrupted. You don't need to know anything from me. I don't work for you. Don't be difficult with me, Heather responded. I have privileges here. Behind her, a young child let out a scream. It rattled her for a second, but Heather didn't turn to look as such outbursts could be common in ERs. You have no privileges over me. You can clearly see how busy we are here. Then Rachel turned to a licensed vocational nurse. Becky, did Tig start a shift yet? Becky, a fresh three-year school graduate, responded by pointing. He's right over there. Tig Marcello, a handsome nurse in his late 20s with piercing blue, inquisitive eyes and wavy black hair, was helping a woman get out of her wheelchair at the loading dock. He said some words to the former patient and watched as a family member got her into a waiting car. After a quick wave, he turned and walked back to the building. Rachel gave him a genuine smile, which he returned to all three of them as he headed to a waiting patient with a bloody lip. Heather nodded back to him with a slight smile. Rachel noticed with a souring expression, followed by a direct question. What do you want here, Dr. Seward? I just need to go over a patient report with Dr. Nelson. Have you... Heather's words were drowned out by another scream from a child. When he stopped for a moment, she continued, Have you seen him? Rachel turned back to her LVN. Becky, what's with the kid? Likely broken wrist, Becky answered. He's got two ahead of him. We already bumped him forward, but things are crazy back there with Dr. Larimore out this week. Well, Miss Privilege... Rachel turned back to Heather. You feel like scrubbing in today? Heather looked like she was about to lose all patience when Rachel continued. Relax, I'm not serious. Go have a seat. I'll let Eugene know you're here when I see him next. Heather bit her bottom lip slightly. You are too kind, Rachel. You don't think I know that? Rachel called back, already walking off towards her next task. Heather looked around for an open seat, and the only available one was next to the screaming child. After a few moments of contemplation, she approached the boy and asked his mother, May I see his wrist? Are, are you a doctor? The concerned mother asked hopefully. I am, but not for the ER, so I can't really help much, but I can give it a quick look and possibly get things to move faster for you. The woman nodded without any emotion. Heather looked at the hand, slowly moving it from side to side. 
does this hurt? What's his name? Thomas, the mother replied. Thomas, does this hurt? He nodded with tears in his eyes. Okay. How about this? He yelped a bit, but not very loudly as he was seemingly cowed by authority. Heather looked him in the eyes and sighed. Then she glanced around to see if anyone was watching. The mother held her son but was not paying attention to what Heather was doing. Rachel was already yelling at another nurse on the other side of the room. Tick caught her eye for a moment while he continued to work with the nearby patient. She grimaced and took hold of Thomas's arm, partly shielding her body from the mother. A subtle yellow light transferred from her hands to his wrist. Relief came over the young boy's face. Then Heather looked pained herself. When it was done, she asked, What about this? Does it hurt now? Thomas shook his head no. It's broken, isn't it? Asked the mother. No, it's just a strain, not broken. Heather replied through gritted teeth. It's going to hurt a bit, Thomas, but nothing some good old-fashioned icing wouldn't fix. You won't need a cast. The mother beamed with relief. Thomas rotated his wrist slowly, confused as if expecting the movement to cause pain. Heather stood up slowly as she tightly held her own wrists. She smiled and walked away. Tig walked up to her quietly and said, I saw that. Not here, Heather replied with a serious tone to her voice. When is your shift over? I'm supposed to go to lunch in 20, but more like 40 with this day. Will you be around? Yeah. I have to go over some things with Dr. Nelson today. If you see him back there, let him know I'm waiting. Somehow I think Rachel will forget. Nah, he smiled. She wouldn't. She's nice. Heather stared him down, unsure if he were making a joke or not. He wasn't, and added... You two don't get along, do you? Dr. Eugene Nelson, a middle-aged white physician who always came across as soft-spoken but distant, arrived in the ER's first-floor nurse station at the same time as Dr. Charles Harris, his counterpart in surgery. Dr. Harris was 10 years older and a black man with a shiny hairless dome of a head and with a subtly gray goatee. It was obvious to anyone watching that they were not friends. The nurse addressed Eugene first. Dr. Nelson, here's the report. Mel 44, complaining of chest pains and shortness of breath. Wife brought him in when he seemed to lose consciousness for a few seconds while doing yard work. Blood pressure 145 over 95. Other vitals normal. Okay, Eugene responded while he looked over the chart. Charles took that opportunity to get the nurse's attention. Give 0.5 milligrams of Dilaudid for room 5A. Give it 20 minutes and see if there's any change. If not, give one milligram more and alert me. Eugene picked up another chart off the counter and asked the nurse, What's going on with the patient in 7A? Waiting on labs, she responded. Charles spoke up. That's my patient, Eugene. Eugene looked at the top of the chart and crooked his lips to one side. So it is. I'm probably looking for 7B. Don't touch my patients. It was a mistake. I don't covet your patients, Charles. The nurse picked up the phone to make herself busy at the uncomfortable exchange.
Charles squared off with Eugene and removed his glasses. I just need to be clear here because you've made that mistake before. I'm sure it won't happen once we have fully transitioned to the computerized system. Eugene explained. This halfway point has made a mess for everyone. Isn't that right, Layla? The nurse pretended not to hear as she waited on the phone. Charles noticed her discomfort and then just shook his head and left the station. Tig entered the room just then. Hey, Dr. Nelson. Tig waved his hand. Dr. Stewart's here to see you. Heather didn't tell me she was coming today, said Charles. Sounds like she's not here to see you, said Eugene dryly. Tig, could you let her know I'll find her after finishing with 7B? I'm not your messenger. You're thinking of Tika. Oh, and I'm on lunch now. Tig said after dropping off some paperwork and then turned back to the door. Before exiting, he continued while smiling. I'm just messing with you. I'll tell her on my way out. Tig headed down the hallway and back out to the waiting room. After a moment, he found Heather and noticed that her wrist was wrapped up. You keep bandages in your purse? I am a doctor, she replied. Or something like that. He gave a childlike grin and then said, Dr. Nelson needs to finish up with a patient. Coffee? Yeah. A little later, Tig and Heather were sitting at a coffee annex in the hospital, each with a hot drink. Why did you help that kid? Tig asked. He was in pain. That's kind of the whole gist of the job. But when we talked before, you led me to believe you only drew on that power to help people in desperate need. Did you hear his screaming? Heather countered. Yeah, but he was in a hospital and it was just a broken wrist. He would have had it treated. I don't know. Three weeks in a cast is probably a good learning moment for a kid. You're questioning my judgment on when I choose to heal? No, I just want to understand how you think. If I'm going to learn how to do this, I, I need to understand when to use it and when not to. You broke your own wrist to keep a kid from crying. I'll heal faster than that kid. I have my own tricks for slowly restoring my energy. I don't know. Maybe I have a soft spot for kids in pain. Or maybe I was trying to speed things up there because I hate waiting around over paperwork. Why don't you sign on with the ER and save more people? Oh, sounds exhausting. Heather sighed. No, seriously. I have my own practice, so I can choose what cases to take and not overextend myself. The ER wouldn't suit me. But isn't there a moral obligation to use your powers to help as many people as possible? asked Tig earnestly. No, there isn't. I do what I feel I can without losing myself. Look at yourself, Tig. You make a good living wage and you own a house that is rising in value, and I know you have a trust fund from your parents. But I don't see you liquidating everything to go build hundreds of clean water wells in Africa. In the long run, that would save more lives than staying here. You need to be comfortable in your day-to-day -day life or your healing days will be short-lived. How does Dr. Nelson do it then? He has his own tricks. What tricks? Let's just say Eugene believes in robbing Peter to pay Paul. Heather wouldn't say more. So Tig redirected the topic slightly. 
That reminds me of another question that's been bugging me. Was Jesus a healer? What? No. I mean, I'm not religious. Heather thought for a moment. Actually, he probably was. Makes more sense than the whole son of God thing. Sorry, I know you're Catholic. I don't actually know about the subject. I do know that if he was a healer, it didn't end well for him. That's a good lesson as to why we should hide our abilities. But what if this did come out? Tig pressed. I mean, think of all the people who could be trained to help others. All the good that could be done. That's sweet. And naive. Do you really believe that if people learned how to transfer health to and from other people by standing near them, to potentially kill them, untraceably, mind you, that that would make the world a better place? I broke my own wrist to heal that boy. I could have easily done it the other way around. Wait, are you saying that there are people who misuse the power like that? Heather's cold expression answered his question, and he shuddered. Jeremy Lee Frum was an unremarkable 50-year-old man who would generally be described by others by his partially balding head, his brass-rimmed glasses, or perhaps his wide, thin smile, which tended to give his face a skeletal look. He carefully drew the curtains of the bedroom open a crack to let sunlight fall across the face of the woman lying in the bed. Her eyes weakly flickered open and squinted at the brightness. She grimaced when he smiled his corpse smile at her, and he said, Looks like you're awake after all. Despite his overall thin appearance, Jeremy was in exceptional health with strong, sinewy muscles and no visible scars. He stood just over six feet and wore a blue and white lycra tracksuit. He reached into his pocket and pulled out his phone, tapped on it, then placed it on the bedside table. How about a little music with breakfast? The phone blasted out, I Feel Good by James Brown. He started swaying his hips and moving his arms up and down close to his body. He either didn't have the rhythm or the commitment as he awkwardly danced in place. He smiled down at her, rocking his head back and forth then reached down to gently brush her hair from her forehead with a hand. She swallowed hard and closed her eyes again. He shuffled backwards out the bedroom door and spun around to head into the hallway. Midway down the hall, he began singing lyrics with the song. Once in the kitchen, he opened cupboards until he found a frying pan. He placed it on the stove and turned on the gas. At an appropriate beat in the song, he flung some butter into the pan and watched it sizzle. Next, he examined the inside of the refrigerator before pulling out a carton of eggs, yogurt, and a bowl of fruit. He poured the yogurt and fruit into a juicer and started pulsing the power button to the beat. Then he pressed the 30-second blend mode and turned to remove four eggs from the carton. He continued to bob his head even though the juicer drowned out the music from the other room. He cracked the eggs meticulously, carefully poured each into the frying pan and cooked them over easy. I feel good. I knew that I would. He sang off key. The juicer finished and left the house silent. So good, so good, I got you. He continued. 
it took a moment to realize that the music was no longer playing. He gave a quizzical look back down the hall, but his attention shifted back to the eggs so they didn't burn. When the eggs were done, he slid them onto two plates and poured two smoothies. With a little skill, he balanced them all and slowly walked back down the hall. Not a fan of James Brown? Well, no accounting for taste, he cheerily said. He entered the bedroom announcing, I hope you like eggs because... And then stopped as he noticed his phone was in a different position and the phone app was open. He set down the plates and saw that the screen displayed a finished call to the number... Nine one one. No, no, no. Jeremy nearly dropped the drinks on the table. What did you do? The woman did not respond. She just laid perfectly still. There were tears on the side of her face. Jeremy ran down the hall to the front of the house to frantically look out the window. He continued, No, no, no. You, you don't. You, you don't touch my phone. He sat down on the couch and put his hands to his temples. Think, Jeremy. He started to shake violently. Think. After a moment, a calm drew over him. He stood up and walked with determination back to the bedroom. The woman was visibly sobbing now. He sat down on the side of the bed and put his hands on her in a calming fashion and said, Hush. Don't worry. I'm going to make the pain go away. He started to knead his hands into her, and slowly green tendrils of light escaped her skin. He drew them up like silk and absorbed them through his fingers. His hands, then arms, started to emit a soft yellow glow as the energy made its way up toward his torso. Oh, thank you, Stephanie. Oh, I really do appreciate all you've done for me. His voice was soothing, but his actions became more forceful. She let out a weak scream and tried to fight back, but was too much in a weakened condition. The green light started to pour out of her body, filling him to the point where his whole body got an unnatural glow. The sound of a car could be heard speeding to a stop outside the house. Jeremy disengaged, and Stephanie's frail body fell limply back into the bed. His eyes still had a yellow radiance to them as he rushed once again to the front of the house. He ran outside where a police car was waiting. Officer Maxine Gutierrez, a middle-aged brunette woman, jumped out of the cruiser and put her hand to the gun on her hip while raising the other hand. Stop right there, she commanded. Jeremy immediately put his hands up for her to see and yelled, Thank God you're here. She needs medical help. She's in here. Maxine motioned for him to lead the way, but did not remove her hand from her sidearm. Who are you? He started to lead her into the house as he answered. I'm Jeremy Lee Fromm. I'm one of Stephanie's neighbors from down the street. What happened? Maxine questioned as they made their way into the bedroom. I came over here to make her some breakfast. She's been very sick. Cancer. She just went unresponsive. This way. Maxine saw the woman's body and quickly evaluated the situation, then called into the station on her shoulder radio to verify the need for an ambulance on the scene. The station reported that one was already on the way and should be there within moments. Please stand over here, 
Maxine commanded as she moved to examine Stephanie. Jeremy went to the spot she indicated, out of reach and indirect line of her sight. Is she going to be all right? Jeremy feigned worry in his voice. You saw her go unconscious, or was she already unconscious when you got here? Jeremy noticed his phone still open at the side of the bed. She wasn't looking good, so I went to make her some food. Then she screamed and started rambling about something. She didn't seem in her right mind. I'm sorry, I just didn't know what to do. I'm no good under pressure. She used my phone to call 911. You were here when she called? Maxine pressed. Sirens blared as the ambulance pulled up to the house. Paramedics rushed in the front door and Maxine stepped aside to let them do their job. Yes, I mean, I didn't hear what she said. What did she say? Am I in some kind of trouble? Jeremy almost looked angry, which Maxine noted. You are trouble, Heather, Dr. Eugene Nelson said as the two of them entered his sparse hospital office. Heather replied, Oh, please, Eugene. You're the one who asked for my help with Dr. Bilson's case last month. All I'm asking is some pointers on dealing with the insurance company given the circumstances. I figure you have a lot of experience finding the loopholes to smooth things over. You treat me like a big brother. I'm not your big brother. Just because we have the same dough and doesn't mean I owe you anything. I'm treating you like a colleague who has more experience in this area. Just help me with this, and we'll call it even, and I'll be out of your hair. Yeah, you keep saying you're leaving town. Yet it seems like you always have a reason to continue hanging around this hospital. First Charles, now Tig. <laughs> Tig's too young for me. Not that I haven't thought about it. That's not what I mean. I've been concerned about you training him. Tig has a talent for it. You said that yourself. He's got the right temperament. He'll probably end up being better at it than either of us. Or at least more ethical. I don't have an issue with Tig. He is a good candidate. It's, it's you. Are you really in a position to mentor? You made it clear you only have time to train Tika. With the Doan gone, it looks like I'm the only option in the city. Maybe. Just don't make a mess of this. Well, then help me with him. And help me with this paperwork. Fine. Big brother, she added. Don't push it. Oh, and really, Charles? How can you stand that guy? Dr. Charles Harris rushed up to meet the EMTs at the ambulance entrance and said, What do we have here? Female, age 34, found unconscious by her neighbor. Vitals are critical, but she's still breathing. Looks like her organs are failing. Neighbor mentioned cancer. As they continued through to the OR, Tika Vaziri, a raven-haired intern from Iran, joined them. She carried herself with a confidence and calm of an experienced doctor, despite her resident status. She tapped at the tablet in her hands and added, She's in her system, but there's no record of cancer. Still moving astride the stretcher, Charles examined Stephanie and shook his head. Her records are wrong, then. I'd be shocked if she wasn't at stage four pancreatic or worse. The monitor beeped to indicate her signs were dropping rapidly. Get her prepped. Check to see if she has a DNR right away. 
The EMTs lifted Stephanie to the operating table, and the medical team began working in a highly efficient and urgent manner. Charles' expression revealed that things were not going to go well. The long-term skilled nursing facility was a block away from the hospital. In room 324, Nicole Marcello, a young Italian-American woman who had been in a coma for several months, lay dormant as her older brother Tig came in. He rapped on the door out of habit. Hey, sis, how you doing? He sat down beside her and held her hand while giving her a gentle kiss on the head. I know I haven't been here in a couple of days. Hospital's been super busy. I've got some potentially good news, though. I'm learning some crazy new stuff that could end up helping you. Let's just say it's non-Western medicine. Stuff Dad wouldn't approve of, so you know it's got to be good, right? Speaking of good, see that Camilla's been here every day to see you. Pretty sure she's going to ask you to marry her as soon as you wake up. There's a good reason right there to wake up, sis. Not just getting a kick-ass Latina hottie for a wife, but it's yet another thing for Dad not to approve of. He looked at her for a little longer and then settled in the chair beside the bed and picked up a book from the nightstand. Hang in there a little longer, baby sis. Everyone's rooting for you, and soon, well, let's just say, soon I may be able to pull off a miracle. Officer Maxine Gutierrez waited outside the OR as Charles exited, pulling off his gloves and mask. Sorry, I just called it, Charles said matter-of-factly. I'm surprised she wasn't in hospice with how advanced it was. I'm going to need an autopsy, Maxine stated. Uh, sure. Why is that? Charles asked. Heather walked around the corner. Maxine and Charles both nodded to her. Charles looked like he wanted to say something to Heather, but Maxine answered his question first. The woman said she was being murdered by the neighbor when she called 911. I... Sincerely doubt this was murder, Charles stated. This was a long time in the making. No overt signs of poisoning or attack, but whatever. I mean, we can see what the autopsy says. Medical staff wheeled the stretcher with the sheet covering the body out of the OR. As they went by, Heather brushed her unbandaged hand inconspicuously on the body, as if feeling for temperature. She pulled her hand away when Charles gave her a quick, awkward hello in passing. Soon everyone had moved on except Heather and Maxine. Hello, Dr. Stewart. I didn't know you worked here. Officer Gutierrez, um, how's the chest? Yeah, uh, about that. Uh, amazing, thanks to you. Maxine put her hand on her upper torso. Can I ask you about this case? Heather asked. Normally, no, but you aren't normal, and frankly, this one's a stumper. Something weird about it, your type of weird. Yeah, no, I know, Heather nodded. The woman, she was completely drained of life. I mean, unnaturally so. Feel like doing some consulting work? I do love a good mystery. Great, I'll catch up with you tomorrow. I need to interrogate the neighbor right now. Do you think I'm hiding something? Jeremy demanded. He sat in the interrogation room of the police station. Maxine sat opposite him. Her posture was serious. 
but not accusatory. Don't you find a little odd that she didn't tell anyone about her illness? She was a private person, Jeremy said simply with arms crossed. No, she wasn't. Not according to her co-workers or her family. Well, maybe she didn't want them to see her in pain. She told me that she hated when people pitied her. Why would she confide in you? You've only been her neighbor for... Maxine looked down at some papers and continued. For about a month? That's awfully quick to become someone's confidant, don't you think? Look, I, I'm not even sure why I'm here. I let her use my phone to call 911. I helped. Maxine interrupted and produced a digital audio recorder. This was her 911 call, Mr. Frum. 911, what's your emergency? A voice on the recorder asked, Help me. A tiny voice squeaked through the phone. He's murdering me. My neighbor is doing something to take my life away. I'm dying. Please send ambulance. Please, please hurry. Maxine paused the recorder. Why would she say you're murdering her, Mr. Frum? I told you she was becoming delirious. You saw her. She probably didn't even know what she was saying. Then he thought for a moment and added, Hmm, she may have been talking about another neighbor. She had a clean bill of health from her yearly physical 18 days ago. In less than three weeks, you are saying she was at the end-of-life stage of cancer. I'm not a doctor. Jeremy was getting upset. I'm just saying what she told me. Am I being charged with a crime here? We're waiting for her autopsy results. You're free to go, Mr. Frum, but I wouldn't leave town if I were you. The next day, Eugene was in his office writing notes when Tika entered abruptly. You're needed. Freeway motorcycle accident. Bad one. They might call it before it arrives, but you and Dr. Harris need to scrub up just in case. Yes, ma'am. You think I was a resident here? I, I'm sorry, Tika said, not understanding. Never mind. Eugene got up and followed her. This may be the teaching moment you've been waiting for. From the description, this one may be beyond saving. That's not what I mean. Eugene pulled her back into his office. She gave him a dubious look and he lowered his voice. If he makes it here alive and we can't do anything for him, I'll have to make the call. I can take his remaining health and repurpose it. You're going to kill him? Tika asked with shock in her voice. No, if he's going to die, I'm going to hasten it. The energy I get from him can significantly help several other patients here today. Think of him like a potential organ donor. Tika considered this and didn't seem pleased. An organ donor who never gave consent. I know the ethics of it. Given the circumstances, we can't get consent for something people don't know exists. 
Yes, this is a gray area. But you hunted me down on the internet and moved halfway around the world to learn my technique. This is it. Are you going to help me? How? I don't have enough skill. It would take me hours, time we don't have. Eugene let go of her and started to head out the door again. I don't need that type of help. If it comes to it, I just need you to distract Dr. Harris for a few minutes. At Heather's private practice, Maxine sat beside her at the desk with a folder in hand. Time isn't on our side. We got the initial results of the autopsy back. Maxine handed the folder to Heather, who started to devour it. But it'll be a couple of weeks before we have the full analysis. So far, the prelims suggest no foul play. Yeah, Heather said while scanning the file. There's nothing unusual here except for the rapid timeline. I was able to find some tenuous links between Jeremy Lefram and a couple of other cancer deaths in the last few years, but nothing that would allow me to charge him for anything. You think he did it, though, right? With your, um, you know, powers thing? Oh, it was murder, all right. And no, I don't think you can pin it on him. But the cancer metastasized too quickly to be natural. I've seen this before. So what can I do? Maxine asked. Let me meet with him. For all we know, Mr. Fromm could be innocent and someone else is actually to blame. I think I'll be able to figure out if he has the capability to have done this. So you're just going to ask him? Kind of. I'm your consultant. I can legitimately do some follow-up questions with him about her condition, you know. In the name of research? As Heather spoke, Maxine did not look comfortable. Heather reacted. Look, if he's going to reveal anything, it won't be at the police station or in front of you. Don't worry, I won't go alone. If you want, I can go it alone, Eugene said as he put on his mask after finishing scrubbing up. We'll just be stepping over each other in there. Charles looked almost angry. Are you nuts? You're going to need all the help you can get with this one. The two of them entered into the OR where the motorcycle accident victim was being prepped. The injuries were extensive. The two doctors began working immediately. When Tika entered, Eugene called out, I want Viziri on suction. She needs the experience firsthand. The nurse stepped aside and Tika grabbed hold of the equipment and began clearing away blood. The tension grew in the room as everyone feverishly worked at several major wounds. The doctors asked questions about vitals and ordered the staff to provide internal video monitoring. Undoubtedly, this was a desperate play. And more than once, Eugene caught Tika's eye, subtly indicating that he may need her help soon. She looked reluctant, but couldn't ignore that things were not looking good for the patient, despite both doctors' expert work. It was nearly evening when Heather drove her Mercedes with Tig sitting anxiously in her passenger seat. What do you call this guy? He asked. A vitality parasite. That's what my Doan called people who have an innate power, but none of the medical training. They know just enough to steal health from others to enhance their own life. And I don't know if this from guy is a parasite. How will you tell? Do you sense it like a Highlander? I don't understand your reference, she said. No, I won't sense it. But it isn't hard to suss out. People like to brag about what makes them special. 
I haven't seen you brag about it. You go out of your way to make sure no one knows. Obviously, Dr. Nelson, Tika, Maxine, and I do. But does anyone else? Does Dr. Harris even know? No, but he's not an idiot. I bet he's aware that something's up with us. I just thought maybe you would have let him know. Tig looked out the passenger side window. As I'm pretty sure you're dating him on the sly. I'm not dating him. My mistake. I'm screwing him, but we aren't dating. Oh, Tig didn't know how to react. He's not the only one. Heather noticed Tig's discomfort. What? Don't look at me with those shaming Catholic eyes. I attend to my needs. She focused on driving for a moment, then casually continued. Also, there's a side benefit. The... End result is effectively life energy that I can instantly absorb internally and use. That's one of my tricks. What? Tig was shocked. Are you worried about, I don't know, STDs or getting pregnant? I don't get pregnant. And I can counter any STD with the energy I gain on the spot if needed. Mind you... I have to say this as a doctor. I generally condone condom use. So you just have sex for the power boost? No, I do it because I like sex with different people. Are you okay with that? Because if not, oh wait, I really don't care if you aren't. We're here. They pulled into the driveway of a one-story gray house with perfectly landscaped yard. The mailbox said, from, on one side. Heather started to open the door, but winced, then switched to opening it with her non-bandaged hand. The two of them approached the door, and she knocked loudly. After a few moments, Jeremy Lee Frum opened the door and looked them over suspiciously without saying anything. Mr. Frum, I'm Dr. Stewart, doing a follow-up on Stephanie Long, a neighbor of yours. I already talked with the police, he replied carefully. This isn't a police matter. I'm doing research with the oncology department, and it would be helpful to get some first-hand account on her condition. He stared at Heather. For a brief moment, fear flickered in his eyes, and then he smiled that wide, thin smile. Of course. Come in. He led them into the living room and then headed to the kitchen. I was finishing making myself a smoothie. Would either of you like one? No, thank you. They both responded. After a moment, the sound of a blender started up and Tig casually walked around the room. His attention was caught by a number of old-time photographs on the wall. He looked at a black-and-white one from the early 20th century. It showed a group of travelers posing before a large ocean ship, possibly the Queen Mary. One middle-aged man in the group looked exactly like Jeremy Lee Frum in appearance. Tig looked confused and squinted closer. A large crash caused Tig to turn around in time to see Heather slumped to the floor with Jeremy standing over her holding an iron skillet. Before Tig could react, Jeremy dropped the pan and rushed him, pinning him against the wall. Did you think I wouldn't smell, you leeches? Jeremy spat, 
his voice angry with an unnatural rasp. I know you're kind. You think you're modern doctors, but you're just medieval leeches. You're no different from me. Tig tried to struggle free, but Jeremy was able to hold him firm, sinewy fingers digging into the nurse's arms. A greenish glow started to emanate from them. Jeremy's thin, corpse-like smile began to widen, much further than the face muscles should allow. Tig's eyes grew wide with fear at the horrifying face. Then he saw Heather's hands grab either side of Jeremy's head, and green light poured from his skull into her hands. His eyes were ablaze with green glow as a shrieking howl escaped his mouth. Tig pulled himself away as Heather held tight, draining every bit of green energy from the man. Her eyes glowed yellow and her body vibrated with power. The thing that was Jeremy crumpled to the floor. It vaguely resembled a man. But the skin was gray and seemed more like the flesh of a squid completely without bone structure. What did you do to him? Did you kill him? Tig exclaimed, still riddled with fear. No. Yes, I I don't know. Heather's eyes still glowed as she shook her head. I only extracted energy that he took from others. It shouldn't have killed him. Unless, unless he was completely living on borrowed health. I don't even think he was human. Look at the skin. Tig pointed at the body that seemed to continue to rapidly decompose before them. I've never encountered anything like this, and I've dealt with parasites before. Are you okay? Tig asked, starting to regain his composure. Better than okay. I feel overflowing with energy. She flexed out her arms taking note that her wrist was no longer injured. More than I can hold for long. It's strange and powerful. I need to expel it before I burst. Wait. Tig had an idea form. My sister. Do you think this could help her? Heather considered this and nodded. Let's go quickly. We can come back later to figure out what to do with that... thing... Back in the OR, Dr. Harris and Dr. Nelson continued to operate on the motorcycle victim. Things were not going well. Eugene gave an update. I'm just about finished with the femoral artery. How's the head wound coming? Charles sweated as he focused all of his attention on the hole in the skull. His answer was slow and deliberate. I know what I've got to do here, but I don't have the time. We haven't found where the chest is internally hemorrhaging. I'm close to calling this. Even if I'm successful, he's going to bleed out internally first. Eugene gave a glance to Tika, then removed his glove under the table and placed his hand on the patient's side. He checked again to make sure that Charles and the nurse's attention was firmly at the patient's head. A slow greenish glow emanated from the spot where his hand gently started kneading. Tika stared Eugene in the eyes, and Eugene gave a final nod of resolution, then moved his attention fully to his bare hand to start working on draining the body. Dr. Harris, Tika spoke with sudden conviction. If he weren't bleeding, 
Are you certain you would be able to save his life? Eugene snapped up to give her a questioning glare. Of course. Just need a little more time. Save your intern questions until we're done. A tense moment hung over the entire operation. Eugene closed his eyes, then shifted his hand up the torso a bit to underneath the surgical towel. A yellow light escaped the edges as he began the process of transferring his own internal health to that of the patient. After a few moments of his prodding about, one of the nurses on the monitors exclaimed, Doctor, look, the bleeding has stopped. How is that? Charles looked at the nurse, then at the instrument, then at Eugene. Multiple punctures don't just clot up by themselves. That machine needs replacing. I've had misreads on it before, too. Eugene said while slipping his glove back on, and he began to work on a new area. Tika noticed that Eugene's skin now had a pallor appearance. A short time later, Charles withdrew his knife and announced, I think I have him stable. Eugene stumbled back from the table, but Tika caught him before anyone else noticed. Good job, Charles, Eugene said weakly. You saved this guy. I didn't think we could, but you did. Charles acknowledged the unexpected compliment as he removed his mask, wiped his brow, and let the nurses take over. Heather and Tig quietly entered the dark room, 324. Tig gave a last look out the door to ensure no one was coming down the hall. Then he rushed to his sister's bed and held her hand. This is it, sis. Dr. Stewart is going to help you. Heather stood at the foot of the bed, still brimming with energy. Tig nodded to her, and she began her process of moving her hands over the unconscious woman. Yellow light flowed out, encompassing every inch of her body. Heather seemed to be crafting the energy with the precision and art of playing a musical instrument. This was not a vast process. When she was done, she sat back in a chair, exhausted. Tig looked hopefully at his sister's face and then hurriedly asked, Did it work? I gave her everything I had. Heather exhaled. Tig waited a few moments, but there was no change. Nicole continued to lie there, breathing softly. She's not responding to it at all. Tig looked up at Heather, pleading with his eyes. It, it should have done something. Heather said more to herself than to Tig. It is hard to have good results without really understanding what's truly wrong with her, but it still should have done something. I'm sorry, Tig, this wasn't the answer for your sister. Something here is beyond my understanding. Tig looked broken. He put his head against his sister's. I'm so sorry, Nicole. We'll figure this out, Tig. Obviously, there's so much more we both need to learn about how this energy works. Tika walked around the corner of the hospital's back hallway, pulling a light sweater over her head. When she got it on, she almost collided with Eugene, who had been slowly shambling in the same direction. She noticed his gait and hunched posture. You did the right thing in there, Dr. Nelson. He nodded his head and stood up straight, trying to mask his weakened condition. Doctor's job, to heal the patient. 
but usually not at a personal cost. It took a lot out of you. If you want, you can take some energy from me. We can balance the burden. No, no, Tika. He broke eye contact and showcased that he could walk normally. I'll be fine. I've got my tricks of replenishing myself. You go home. We'll talk more tomorrow. Tika shrugged and turned. Suit yourself, doctor. Get some good rest. Eugene watched as she walked down the hall and out the back exit. When she was gone, he let out a breath and hunched his shoulders in pain again. Slowly, he limped down a different hallway. The door at the end was labeled Hospital Morgue.